In today's show, we're talking dynasty. We're looking at players. We're looking at what we do in terms of breakouts, how we believe it, when guys drop off, some settings you need to use. And I'm going to be joined by Matt Lawson, but I'm also joined by Michael Bolton. Thanks, Josh. It's Michael Bolton here, and it's time for another episode of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. Let's get to it. Let's get to it, indeed. You are Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Your daily fantasy basketball podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd and I am the lead fantasy analyst at BasketballMonster.com and you can find me on Twitter as always at RedRock underscore Beeble, on TikTok at RedRock underscore Beeble and on Instagram at Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. The championship team is all about players being a perfect fit, same with your vehicle, so parts, so parts that fit head what the hell is this read? This doesn't even make sense. So for parts that fit, head to eBay Motors and look for the green check. Stay in the game with eBay guaranteed fit. eBayMotors.com. Let's ride. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, that was great. Um, thank you for making Lockdown Fantasy Basketball your first listen every day. We are free and available on all platforms. And a big thank you to all of you guys who do listen every day. You are the everydayers. So shout out to you guys who are always here. Speaking of someone who's not always here, but he's here often enough. We talk to him all the time. He is our dynasty expert. He's own, his own dynasty expert. He's your dynasty expert. He's our dynasty expert. It is Matt Lawson. Matt, welcome back to the show. Josh, I have to say, this is the time of the year where I'm the most locked in on this show. I found this show uh, back, I think, right after the 2016 NBA draft and uh, listened to you go through all 60 picks with fantasy analysis. And I knew I had found uh, my podcast home. Uh, these off-season shows, to me, as someone who loves Dynasty, are the most important shows of the year where we get to look back at what just happened in the season uh, that we went through, but with the idea of what's going to happen going forward. And I think that's the most interesting thing about fantasy basketball and what makes Dynasty League so great. I agree. I, I look obviously the the listenership and viewers and that drop off at this point in the year, but I, I think there's tons of information that we get out of this by looking back, by looking forward. We're still we're gonna do a live draft show again. I'm probably gonna do like a hundred hundred or so prospect profiles, maybe eighty. I don't know, but we're gonna go through a bunch of players because when a random player steps up out of nowhere, we're gonna know a little bit about them just to understand what it means and get ahead of the curve and get all this information in our head because that's dynasty. Now, I was talking to um Adam King yesterday, your uh, your colleague or out yeah. Obviously, everyone's colleague who works in the fantasy space, but he works with you at Fantasy Basketball International. And he was saying, hey, do you think there's been a rise in the popularity of Dynasty? And I think that I think it is true that there has been a rise in it, but I still think that because the Dynasty community is so um, engaged and has to be as engaged because that's the sort of you know, crazy level of play that they're involved in, that it maybe seems that it's a little bit um, more, more popular than it is because you know, we can look at or I can look at your yeah, numbers of people listening at these dynasty shows, and it always does drop off. But just from you, who is enmeshed in the dynasty sphere, how have you seen the rise in popularity? And you know, what do you what do you think it is? Like it's five percent of leagues, fifteen percent of leagues. Like where do you sort of see the rise and and the current space of dynasty leagues? Josh, when I started doing dynasty leagues for fantasy basketball, it was all the way back in uh, 2014, I think my first basketball dynasty league was, and there it was very fringe. I mean, you could find very little on the internet about dynasty leagues, dynasty league resources. You started bringing in uh, some, uh, creating some community around the Red Rock dynasty yep. leagues. I joined some of those 
um, around that time in 2016 when I found your podcast. Uh, that was fantastic because it brought together a lot of the people that I still talk with daily uh, on the Fantasy Basketball International Discord who are in a lot of my leagues. Um, and that started to build community. But what I still found there was a lack of resources. And uh, that's why I started doing what I did, first starting creating ADP, then rankings, uh, trying to build out more leagues at Fantasy Basketball International. And that has really built some community around it and an accessibility that I think has expanded Dynasty Leagues quite a bit in the last couple of years. Now, it's hard to say what percentage. It's still dominant for season-long mm -hmm. leagues. Uh, but I know personally that there are at least hundreds of active Dynasty Leagues out there because I am constantly being encountered with new people that I've never talked to before who are telling me about their league that's existed for five, six years and how excited they are that there's more Dynasty content out there. So it is growing. And one of the big additions has been the crossover from uh, fantasy NFL dynasty leagues on sleeper into fantasy basketball dynasty leagues on sleeper. Now sleeper has a unique format that isn't maybe necessarily what people are used to in the fantasy basketball space, but it has been a really good way to transition people from what's very popular dynasty NFL to dynasty NBA. And I get questions all the time from people who use that format. Yeah, it's definitely look increased. And the thing is that you, you said like, you know, back in 2016, literally nobody did Dynasty content. Like I did some, we did like some Dynasty mock drafts. We did a little bit, not, not a huge amount. We did some stuff. And now there's you who does it exclusively. And there's a bunch of other guys. And I'm going to give these guys a shout out now who do it exclusively. There's Rep Bauer who does it. There's um, Noel Rubin, you just told me, is doing a Dynasty podcast and has got a Dynasty newsletter. Uh, there's Jason, who's at DBC Jason on Twitter, who does a ton of interesting stuff. There's, I don't even know this guy's name. I'm going to have to contact him. Ops Watching, his name is. He's a, a fellow Aussie. There's Harley Scotland, who does it. And Dizzle Dynasty Sports. We've got a, a group of these guys. So there's multiple guys. I'm going to try and get most of these guys on the show over the coming weeks to talk Dynasty. But there's a plethora of guys coming out, just putting out um, Dynasty content. And that's great for growing the sport. But look, for everyone who doesn't know, just a quick thing, Dynasty Leagues are leagues where you keep your roster year to year. It's a little bit different to a keeper league, Matt, in that I guess some of the principles can sort of blur across, but a keeper league is usually, hey, you keep two guys or you keep four guys or you keep six guys or whatever it is. And a Dynasty League, it's like you keep everybody, assuming that it fits into the rules of the league, much like how we mirror the actual NBA. Yeah, it's, it's a format that I think much closer uh, relates to what it would be like to work in an NBA front office where you're looking at players from a holistic perspective across their entire career rather than isolated down to a single season or for a keeper league looking at a smaller pool of players that are being kept whereas you're turning over and redrafting a large portion of the player pool every single year. Uh, the level of investment that, that creates is awesome for going through the offseason. I think it enhances the experience of the offseason dramatically, and it's why I recommend that everybody join at least one Dynasty League because as you're going through the offseason and seeing how teams are changing, thinking about how that impacts the players that are already on your Dynasty team, not the players that you might draft in October, but the players that you already have, uh, it really gives a whole different lens to every news story that you see and gets you more invested in the draft because of the rookie drafts that you have every offseason. I think it's a great way to enhance your experience of enjoying the NBA and fantasy basketball. And it just makes you a better season long player because you know the young players that are going to break out in future seasons. You already know their fantasy games. Even if they're not fantasy relevant right now, you know those players already before the rest of your league mates do. That's true. Uh, absolutely. And it's like when we talk about certain situations, we're going to get to this in a second. We're going to talk key settings and, and things to look for when setting up a dynasty league later in the show. But in terms of looking at a player, you can't say, well, look at this guy. Look what he did. Look what he's doing for the next month. Right? That's great. But it doesn't matter when we get in two years' time and so much stuff changes. And 
yeah, when for an example like you know, Keegan Murray, really good rookie season. He's also two, three years older than a lot of the other rookies. So when they're in year four, year three, they're at the same age in development that where he is now. So trying to break your brain through that stuff to go, well, yeah, I still think this guy might be better despite him being 150 ranking spots worse than what Keegan was now, even though they're both rookies. Okay, let's just get back here in uh, in 2027 or 2025 or whatever, and we'll see what the gap is or if there is any gap between um, between those guys at that point. We're going to get into some specific stuff in a second. Today's episode, though, is brought to you by eBay Motors. Hopefully, this script is a little bit easier to read. For a championship team, it's all about making sure every player is a perfect fit. It's the same when it comes to your vehicle. Every part needs to fit just right. So the next time you need parts and accessories, head to eBay Motors. With eBay Guaranteed Fit, you can be sure every part that you need fits right the first time around. Just add your ride to my garage and look for the green check to know your part will fit or your money back. Because just like in sports, confidence is the name of the game when you shop on eBay Motors. And with over 122 million parts to choose from, you'll be back in the game in no time. After all, it's easy to bring home a win when the right parts are guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, and the right prices on ebaymotors.com. Of course, Broncos country, let's ride. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. All right, Matt, let's talk about some individual players now. And one thing that is people get caught up in, especially if they are new to Dynasty or they're not new to Dynasty and they're in redraft leagues, and they see what happens at the end of the season. They see some guys going off and they go, oh, that's great. It's going to be awesome next season. Shaden Sharp, huge numbers. Jaden Ivey went crazy. Um, Oshay Abaji put up some decent numbers. Uh, Jabari Smith looked better. You've got the Williamses, Jalen Williams, Mark Williams, putting up great numbers down the stretch here. But you know, what's real? Like context is very important. We can look at this and go, Jaden Ivey averaged 30 points a game and 40 usage, and like, but it doesn't matter because a million guys are out. So looking at those names there, I've got Sharp, Ivey, Abaji, Jabari Smith, Mark Williams, Jalen Williams. And Jalen Williams was a top 40, top 30 player post all side break. Some crazy numbers. Yeah, what do we look at there and go, huh, what's real? What's important to note? And how do we sort of take that information of what happened post All-Star and apply it to future production? Well, I think what we want to do is to try to disconnect the signals from the noise and try to figure out what are things that are sustainable going forward? What are flashes for future production? Um, and what stuff that's just a product of the silly season? Shaden Sharp is probably the most important example of this because I think the recency bias of what Shaden Sharp did just in April, you know, where he's averaging 22 points, over two threes, six rebounds, five assists. He's just putting up these big stat lines, and it's super inefficient. Uh, and it leaves people, I've already seen some trades that are being thrown around of people treating Shane Sharplakes around a top 50 dynasty asset. Now, maybe he eventually gets there, but we need to remember what role this 18-year-old was in for most of the season, where he was playing essentially as a spot-up shooter on offense who would occasionally get a put-back dunk or a big dunk in transition. You'd see the flashes of athleticism and, and the shooting, the confidence and shooting from three-point was good. I mean, for a kid his age, he was a good three-point shooter, and that suggests a very high floor. Shaden Sharp is probably at least going to be like Terrence Ross in the NBA. But this end-of-season portion, what we saw from him after the Blazers shut it down, where he kind of had all-you-can-eat usage, suggests – okay, maybe this is the star wing upside that we were hoping to see from him. He got to be able to do a little bit more on ball. We saw some big assist games. And while that's not going to be sustainable for next year, those flashes are at least reminders with young players. They're not consistent yet, but they're reminders of what their upside can be long-term. 
what here are the things in the statistics that I like about Shaden Sharp that I think suggest that he's on a path still to be a very good NBA player. Uh, the foul drawing. He went from averaging only 0.8 free throw attempts per game before the All-Star break and afterward averaging 2.5 free throw attempts per game, and that was only in seven more minutes. So that's a big increase in his foul drawing, which is a good star indicator. You want to see perimeter players who are able to draw fouls. His playmaking and ball handling improved dramatically after the break as well. Um, he had 37 turnovers and 37 assists before the break. That's an even assist to turnover ratio. That's not good. You don't want to see that. It's also uh, a hor horribly low amount of assists as well for any sort of player yeah. getting regular rotation minutes. It's insane, and it shows how limited his role was because if the ball was getting to him, it was basically the end of the line for yeah. the ball on that play. It was it was going up or it was going out of bounds. Um, and after the break, he's averaging four assists, two turnovers. And you actually like to see turnovers a little bit with young players because uh, it absolutely. suggests that they're testing they're testing the limits of what they can do. They're trying to progress and improve, and they're making some mistakes along the way. But if you don't see turnovers from a young player, there isn't a lot of upside there. Yeah, that's um, and to, then, to me, that's the Oshayabaji issue. Exactly. Um, and I, I think there's the, the the starter kit for a star wing here with Sharp, but I don't want people to get ahead of themselves and start assuming five different moves ahead from the Blazers because Damian Lillard has not been traded yet. Anthony Simons is still there. Jeremy Grant is likely to be re-signed. There's a lot that's still in place from this team. Can I just tell you something about the Blazers that I, that I know or that I have been informed of is that it seems, look, none, none of this is guaranteed, right? None of this is guaranteed, but it seems that Sharp is basically going to be a starter next season right that is that is the word that, that i that i am being led to believe that he will be a starter next season and you can assume from that what you what you want oh, you don't have to assume i'll tell you that means that anthony simons isn't going to be there right so you could hear in simons's press conference the other day that he said um you know what well, you can see where the nba is going we need switchiness we need length and you know if that means i have to go i means i have to go because he knows, right? So I don't think Simons are going to be there. I think we can pencil Sharp in. The thing is that if that their pick doesn't end up, and you've heard this quoted many times, and I've had this information for a bit, if their pick isn't number one, uh, it's going. It's gone. That pick and Simons is gone. And there are numerous players that they are targeting. And yeah, you, the names are all relatively obvious names. Uh, yeah, Siakam, Jalen Brown, Mikhail Bridges, who we're going to talk about in a second. So... It is going to be an interesting... And Jeremy Grant, yes, you're right. He is likely to re-sign. So there is some interesting things there with Sharp. So those guys are back and Lillard is going to be there. But I think Sharp's role will... It won't be what it is now, but it will be sizable in comparison to what it was last season, is, is my understanding. Yeah, and if he moves up into about what he was post-All-Star, which was playing across you know a, a decent amount of minutes, 27 minutes a game, he was averaging about 15 points, a couple threes, four rebounds, two and a half assists, and low stocks. I think that's a realistic line if all of a sudden he becomes a starter. He's probably going to be playing minutes in that high 20s range just because if they want to win, he's not a helpful player defensively at this point. He's probably not going to be a winning player, but if they're going to move him to be a starter, he might make somewhat of a leap forward. I just think that we, we're going to need to see steps here because he's going to be beginning the season at 19 years old. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, I think we have to be cautious with it, but I think that the the understanding of the Blazers seeing enough to say, all right, we are you know, going in on you being this guy. Might not happen next season, but that's not what we're about in Dynasty. We're talking about, hey, what's going to happen in three years? Like, are you going to be, you've got the size, you've got the athleticism. Can you do some, like it's compared to what Anthony Simons brings, like you were talking, you know, three inches taller, you know, bigger, stronger, 
probably better defensive upside as well. So there is a little bit more there. And that, that's important to know. You know, you've got these, so what are these names here? Yeah, you know, Smith, Ivy, Abaji, Smith, the Williamses. Who stands out to you as the biggest sort of, eh, I don't think so, guy out of that group? I mean, it's definitely Ochai Agbaji. Um, I, I think this was something that a lot of us who try to project out rookies flag before the season. This guy was a lottery pick, mm-hmm. uh, but the the stat set was entirely empty and he was an older rookie, which, you know, for anybody who kind of follows NBA draft, uh, you know, history, you know that older lottery picks uh, are especially dangerous to be able to take because often they've already kind of maxed out what they're going to be. And if you have an older uh, rookie who has kind of a poor fantasy stat set, it's likely not to get it uh, much better, even with a lot of minutes. And Ibaji, we saw post All Star, he got uh, 30 minutes 30, a game. Yeah. Um, and he was playing, you know, he was playing a substantial role, but there, the stat set was basically just points, some threes, and that was about it. Uh, there, there really wasn't much there. And I don't, and that was the same thing that we saw at Kansas. I don't see a big improvement in that area going forward. His role might be large just because Utah doesn't have enough talent yet to be able to push him to the side. Uh, but he's a guy long term that I see more as a rotation wing than a big minute starter and definitely not a fantasy producer. Like you brought up the name before Terrence Ross, like. Yeah, he was a, a pretty empty fantasy guy who did get some steals. I don't even know if Abaji can do that, but he was hit points and threes. And I think Abaji's probably that. Maybe he's Malik Beasley, who has you know, some real hot stretches where he shoots you know, 52% and gives you 18 points with three threes, which can be useful in certain situations. But we see the downfalls of Malik Beasley all the time. Like, if they don't go in, what are you doing? Maybe best case for Abaji is Buddy Heald. Best case. But I don't know. He's not that level of a volume shooter. So while... I think we look on the surface and we see Abaji did, you know, look, he stepped up and he started. He still wasn't even like a top 200 player after the All-Star break, where these other guys, they put up really, really strong numbers and um, were able to put together some good stuff. So I think in general, like there is context, like, you know, Ivy was doing it without Cade and without Bogdanovich, but this is what happens with rookie guards all the time. You, You see improvements and it comes more year three, but also a little bit in year two. So like that, that were positive signs. Doesn't mean they're going to necessarily hold true all the way through next season, but it's positivity and it's about flashing skill sets versus flashing overall volume. And I think that's that's one of the more important things. And you talk, people can talk eye test versus numbers, but like you've got to have the mix of the two. You've got to be able to see what they're doing, but how they're doing it as well and how it's working in the context of the team. And like, yes, they're feeding everything through Jade and Ivy, but... There's gonna he's gonna have those opportunities and that's gonna that's gonna ramp up as um as seasons go on. Now I, I did mention this name earlier. We'll, we'll get off these rookies now because otherwise we could talk for t- twenty hours on these. Matt, let's um actually let's do a f- another uh do another ad because I've got to get that done and then we'll get into talking about Mikhail Bridges. Stay tuned, everyone. That's called a tease. Today's episode is brought to you by Fangel. Grand slams, no hitters, double plays, they're back. There's no better place to get in on the MLB action than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Because right now, new customers can step up to the plate with a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. Just go to FanDuel.com slash locked on, sign up, and place your first bet up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if you don't win. That seems pretty Seems pretty good. Seems pretty straightforward. It is. That's It is it. Straightforward. You get the app, it's safe, it's secure, and you go and you have a look and you see what's there. If we look at Fangio, we can go look at NBA um, odds because we're talking rookies. Maybe we could look at rookie of the year. I know that Paolo Bonquero is very much the favorite there. Matt, would you have, um, you think Paolo's going to win it? I think he will. Uh, I think points per game is one of the strongest indicators for winning uh, most individual awards, and that that's probably going to carry the day. Those The first impression, too, usually carries a lot of weight, and obviously Paolo was outstanding out the gate. 
He he was. Um, we'll see if anyone has any weird um, you know, decisions on or change their mind based on the late surge by Jalen Williams, but Polo is still the favorite. So don't make miss your chance to get a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. When you join FanDuel today, go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to sign up. FanDuel is an official partner of Major League Baseball. All right, let's talk Macau Bridges because there's a lot of, um, I don't know, like wanking each other off about the value of Macau Bridges and how good he has been um, since he joined Brooklyn. Superstar upside. Didn't did Phoenix not realize they already had Kevin Durant on the roster? You know, a lot of hyperbolic statements coming out about Macau Bridges, and there's absolutely no doubt that Macau Bridges was awesome after the trade coming across. Yeah, averaging like 27 points a game, played his standard 34 minutes a night, um, shot 48 percent. How do we view him moving forward? Like, is this a guy who is... He's a bit older than you think. He's going to be 27 by the time next season starts. So he's right in his prime. I have been on record, and I've said this multiple times, that to me, he is a gigantic sell high. Not because I don't think that if he was to remain in Brooklyn, he would, wouldn't would be their number one option, but this Brooklyn team is not going to look like this. It just isn't going to look like this for multiple years. They're not going to say, right, we're set. Bridges is our guy. Everyone else, build around him. That's, I don't see how any way that like, he's been great. He stepped it up. We saw some bit wonky efficiency stuff towards the end where he had, you know, he was taking 25 shots and shooting 38%, which can hurt. And we saw some of the defensive stats and the assists, some of that fall away, which often happens when you push into a number one, one role. But I also think there's a greater than 50% chance he doesn't even play for this team next season. And this roster, even if he does play for him, the roster is going to be different. Now, could he still be the number one guy in Brooklyn next season? I believe that is possible. I also, again, my odds would suggest he doesn't even play for them. I think there's a huge possibility of that. But if we're looking again, Dynasty, my brain automatically, Matt, when we talk Dynasty, I go, so what's happening in the next three years? Like, that's how I try to look at things. What's the next three years? I reckon we get, we, there's a possibility. Yeah, say it's 50%, 60%, we get one year like this of Bridges. But getting three, I'd put it at 5%. I'd put it at 10% that this is going to happen. A, either because he can't sustain, the team gets someone else, or he finds himself on a different squad where he is second fiddle to Damian Lillard battling the Shaden Sharps and Jeremy Grant's coming through as well. So what are you seeing in terms of the dynasty valuations of Bridges and, and what are you, what is your um, opinion on where he sits from here? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about Mikhail Bridges is that we obviously saw some signs of his ability to be able to get to his spots in the mid-range, hit short mid-range jumpers in Phoenix. Um, he wasn't just a catch-and-shoot 3-and-D guy. Uh, there, there, were, there was something there, but this was way beyond mm. what we could have imagined with Mikhail Bridges. And some of it is driven by some shooting that is uh, possibly regression-worthy. I mean, like on long twos, for example— oh. During the stretch with the Nets, he's hitting 46.5% on long twos. Now, that's similar to DeMar DeRozan. We're at the peaks of the league. It's a little below Kevin Durant still, but it's it's near the top of the league on long twos. And he's also taking a lot more of those long twos. 33.8% of his shots came from that range during his 27 games with the Nets. Uh, so that's a lot more, and it's, it's 10% higher, 11% higher than he was previously shooting from that range. That's probably not sustainable. Maybe he got a little bit better at that, but I, I think we're dealing with a smaller sample size issue there. Take away some of that, and all of a sudden, yeah, the regression continues. And we saw a little bit of that regression at the end of the season as the shooting cooled down slightly, and he moved down toward, even in nine cat, uh, being that number 25 per game during his time as a net, as opposed to being a first round fringe first rounder like he was during the uh, beginning few weeks of that run. So my thought is this. He's not going to stay in this kind of 30% usage role. I just don't think that's who he is. He's probably a 20, 20, 
5% usage guy, maybe a little bit higher, depending on the team context. I don't think he's going back to his role in Phoenix. He's shown too much, and he, and he has he is too good of a shooter uh, to get put back into that role. We've seen too much for a team to push him back down into that kind of position as, a, as an offensive role, but it's going to be somewhere in between. Um, and that will be soon because this Nets team, during the stretch where he was there, was 12 and 15. This is not the, the a nucleus of a championship contention team. We're probably going to see them lose in the first round. This is not going to be the Nets team that we even maybe see next year because they have all these parts that don't really make sense together and they need to be able to find more on-ball creation for their long-term core. They just don't have that right now. If you go to look at his shooting splits over on dunks and threes, some really interesting numbers. Like he was 90th percentile true shooting two years in a row, 59th this season. This is not even including, this is including, sorry, Phoenix stuff as well. His rim finishing, 76, 77, 64, like huge drop-off. His effective field goal percentage below league average at 53%. Um, he was at 60 the year before, 90th percentile, 42nd this season. His mid-range um, shooting, while it was still good, it actually has dropped off from where it was last season. He's, yeah, he's taking way more shots at the rim, as you said, 3.6 per 75 possessions versus 6.8, like doubled his mid-range shooting. And that's what, it's just one thing you can't, it's very hard to rely upon, like elite mid-range shooting. Like it's just not a sustainable diet of shots for 99% of NBA players. So while he was great, and if you find someone, there are there are plenty of people who believe, you know, it's not hard to find people who believe that he is a first round guy moving forward and he is this star. But if I could cash in that, I'd do it straight away. There's just a lot there. And maybe it's possible. Maybe he just is this hidden player who is this guy. But as you said, like the indicators are already there. Like we already saw them and it gets covered up a little bit by the bulk production but you saw the indicators and you can see them in the numbers of the efficiency dropping down the team not performing particularly well with him as that number one guy very similar to hey hey look cam thomas scored 40 points a game four times yeah and they lost three of those games like yeah if your team doesn't win when you are running that sort of an offense then they probably need to do something different with it and we'll see where that where that goes with bridges but it is going to be interesting to see what actually if he does get moved at the, uh, during the offseason or what the nets bring in as well next to him because that's going to have a huge impact he's not immune kevin durant's immune no matter who you bring around he's immune he just does what he does all right i don't think bridges is that guy whether he goes to another team or other guys come in things can change pretty quickly and that brings us to talking about adrian decline because as i said he's going to be 27 when the season starts, Bridges, he turns 27 in August. So that's basically prime numbers. So someone asked this question about how do you know when to move off of a player? And my rule has always been when you when you have a player who is 31, right, that is to me, if they're still performing at an okay level, you should start to move off, except you've got generational guys. They're the guys who are exceptions. All-stars, they're built different. There's different all-stars. There's LeBron. There's Chris Paul, there's Steph Curry, there's those guys, elite guys that you were going to remember for 25 years ago. Like in 25 years' time, you'll talk about, man, remember how good they were? Multiple time All Stars, Kyle Lowry, Paul Millsap, those sort of players, Lamarcus Aldridge. Like once they hit this age, it's done, right? The drop off comes super quick. So I think to me, the classification is once they hit 30, 31, it used to be 30, things have pushed up a little bit. I think it's probably 31 now. And they're a player who's good, but they're not like, can we discuss this guy as a top 50 all-time player? Good. Then uh, once they hit 31, I'm like out. I think it's the drop-off comes and you don't know when it's going to hit you, but it's going to hit you pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I think it's especially going to hit uh, for certain types of players. Uh, number one, big-bodied centers, centers carrying a lot of weight. The NBA is a very difficult game in the modern game to be able to be carrying around a lot of weight and move around the floor the way that you need to with the amount of space that you need to cover. And we already saw this year, I think, Rudy Gobert showing some of oh, that yeah. decline in his age 30 season. Um, and I think you could easily see guys like Jonas Valanciunas, uh, Nikola Vucevic, uh, who's going to be 33 next year. I mean, these are guys who the the wall is going to come because it's very difficult to be that big and continue to move around the way that you need to in the NBA and maintain the minutes that they do. Well, you, you um, can see the other thing, like, where's Demarcus Cousins and Andre Drummond now? Like they're like 29 and 30. I mean, they're like barely in the league. Demarcus Cousins is a Puerto Rican league legend now. Like they just there's obviously other factors there, but it happens. Really, Derek, remember Derek Favors? He's he's like, I think he's 30. Like he doesn't be in the league for two. He played like he had a ten day for the Hawks. Like this stuff is weird. It hits, and you're right. Big men can hit really hard. Yusuf Nurkic is oh, yeah. uh, way below that, 31 years old. But I think we're already seeing his body breaking down because of how much weight he carries on the court. Yeah. Uh, and the and the other one is very similar to what you said, which is kind of these sub all star players, especially perimeter players who do who. Uh, you depend on quickness and the ability to be able to get by defenders um, that can go away pretty quickly. And I think, you know, you start to see some of that decline. Someone like Harrison Barnes, you already saw some of that this year, which just wasn't really the same. He had a good year last year. This year came back a little bit. Um, I, I think guys to look out for, obviously, Chris Middleton. We saw some oh, yeah. injuries this year. I think that could be a real concern going forward, especially on a new contract, wherever he ends up. Uh, CJ McCollum. Uh, 32 next season. Marcus Smart has had a lot of injuries. He's only going to be 30 next season, but he's somebody that you need to be looking out for in that regard. And then Buddy Heald is going to be 31 next season, a guy who obviously had a great fantasy season this year, but I think that there could be considerable decline, even though he depends more on shooting than he does being able to get by people. The one I'd really watch here is uh, also DeMar DeRozan. He's going to be 34. By the time next season starts, he's always been a guy that's played through a lot of injuries and it sort of started to get to him this year with the thigh problem. And he had some straight, he wasn't bad, but he was 20th last year and he was 38th or something this year or whatever, wherever he was. Like it was, it was a difference, 30th. It was a drop off and that might not seem much, but it's enough that where he requires getting huge volume threes and also huge volume getting to the line and huge efficiency from the mid range. If you saw that even with Chris Paul this season, like Chris Paul's an elite player, he's 38, but once you can't hit those outliers where you're 99th percentile, then it, it can drop away pretty quickly. And if DeMar goes from getting to the line eight times, nine times a game and gets there five and a half, then you are seeing a significant drop off. Well, I think a name to watch, and it's, it's not going to happen now, but someone like to me that fits into this mold is, there's two guys, um, Siakam and Jalen Brown. Right, they're very good players. They are in consideration for All-NBA. They are multi-time All-Stars and they're nowhere near this yet. Siakam's 29 at the moment, just turned 29. Jalen Brown, he's around, what is he, 26. But they're the guys that I think once you hit 32, they're not going to be the guys that maintain this to their 36, 37. They're the guys that are really good. They're consistent performers now, and they will be for three more years, I think, for Siakam, five more years, six more years for Brown. But they're the guys that fit into that mold to me that when they hit that, that that wall is going to come earlier than it will for Steph or for... Um, uh, Giannis or those sort of elite level players. Do you have any pushback on those names? No, I think especially someone like Jalen Brown who comes into the league as a raw athletic wing pipe. Uh, that's that's the type that where all of a sudden the athleticism starts to shrink down a little bit. You lose a step or two uh, of what makes you special. Then all of a sudden we saw his skill level, his handle last mm. year was a huge issue. That gets exposed even more once you don't have the athleticism, once that starts to decline. Uh, so those are the kinds of players where the shelf life can be a little bit shorter 
Uh, and I think it's a great archetype of what we're looking out for in Dynasty. The thing that I always look at again is these are, these are not hard and fast rules, but in general, NBA players are at their best athletically when they're 21, right? That's when you have like the most, well, it, 19, 20, like you are fast, you are insane leaper, like around that 20 to 22, that's when you're, but you don't know what you're doing. You're dumb, you make poor decisions, you don't understand the game as well. And when the smarter you are, like you're 30, you're 31, you're 32, you've got more experience, you know what's happening. The sweet spot between the age-related uh, athletic decline, which starts, you know, unbelievably athletic when they're 19, 20, and it goes down, down, down. And you do you know what you're doing, the IQ number, which goes up and up. They sort of intersect their their highest point, the turning point of their parabola is around age 27 to 29. It used to be like 26 to 28. I think it's pushed up a little bit now with a lot of advances in, in modern medicine and training techniques and all sorts of stuff. I think it probably pushes up into the 27 to 29, maybe even 28 to 30, where that peak is, where it's the absolute highest level combined of intelligence and athleticism. And then when you hit that point, the athleticism drops off too much. The IQ pushes up, but it doesn't keep you at that higher level. So that's sort of what we're looking at uh, with that. Um quickly you know, two words do you agree with that sort of assessment i do yeah I, I think that's that's what you saw with someone like lebron james who was amazing coming into the league but it was when he was in miami where all of a sudden that oh, athleticism yeah. merged with his basketball intelligence and he he reached a peak that maybe is higher than any nba player as far as their on-court ability as a two-way player he was dominant on both sides of the ball and if you haven't gone back and watched it go back and watch lebron in those mvp seasons in miami he was truly incredible to watch on the court just got to look at his numbers like he shot 60 percent from the field i think from two seasons as a wing player like the numbers are actually insane for him in miami when he was playing with wade and bosh and he just still did things that he's never been able to do at any other point really um fool's gold maddie we talked a little bit about bridges here i'm not saying he's fool's gold necessarily but anyone who you look at in the 2022 23 season where you go yeah i think that might be fake who sort of stands out to you in that area now, he's, this guy has done this a couple seasons, and he was great this year, but Tevin Porter Jr., I don't think Houston oh, yeah. can continue to go into another season with him as their starting point guard. They want to get better. I think they have to move on from him um, as the starting point guard. They're paying him like he's a sixth man. They can try to see if he's willing to take on that role, and honestly, if he, he could have a very good NBA career if he was willing to be a role player. He's very, very talented, but there's no way. You're, he was number 52 per game in eight cap this year. You, you had that extended absence, but the production was incredible when he played and I just can't see that next season I agree I said the exact same thing about two weeks ago he had like a stinking game and I said hey wait till there's a couple of good ones if I'm in the dice league I'm getting off him as soon as possible because this is not if they get Scoot Henderson he's, he's cooked like it's it's over already for him like he's moves into a instead of 33 34 minute a night ball lead ball handler he's a 27 a night you know maybe Jordan Clarkson six man sort of a player he's he still can be useful but I don't think the trajectory is pointing up from him, even though he was good this season. I, I agree 100% with that one. That's one that I spoke about um, the other day. You got any other names that are interesting to watch? I There was a little bit of a flash from a couple of interesting guys down the stretch of the season who didn't play huge amounts. Um, the, no, the name that for me comes to mind is Peyton Watson in Denver, who averaged a stellar three points at UCLA, but then came out and was playing backup center. And I think he's going to be, we're going to have some rotation minutes here in the playoffs. He was blocking shots. I thought he looked pretty good. Um, a, what do you think of Watson and any other names to you that stand out that on a lot of people's dynasty waiver wires might just be sitting around? 
Yeah. So I'm so so much of a degenerate that I'm constantly following G League statistics, especially for really young players, because I want to see what they're doing, what their uh, stats sets look like. I hope you bring up the guy. I hope you bring up. Let's let's go. <laughs> so uh, for, first on Watson, I mean, the, the stat set in the G League was outrageous, especially for a player who barely played at UCLA the year before. I mean, he was giving big points, big rebounds, hitting threes. He had steals and blocks and, you know, the percentages were solid. I mean, th this was special stuff. And Denver is going to need inexpensive rotation players going forward, given how much they pay to their top three players. It's going to be necessary for them to be able to replace veterans with guys like Peyton Watson, Christian Brown. And I think Watson, even in limited minutes, could be really interesting. If they're trusting him enough to be in the playoff rotation, that's a huge indicator, just like it was uh, last night to see Jalen Johnson putting up oh, yeah. the performance yeah. that he did. And the trust that Quinn Snyder had to put him in a single elimination game and play the minutes that he did with Jimmy Butler going at him, that was incredible to watch and it suggests that Johnson absolutely has a big future there especially for a guy who is taking on being a role player after spending his whole life being the star producing player whether it was at Duke or in high school he is immediately adapted into a good defensive player and he's got a great fantasy stat set he's a good passer uh, he's got a big body he's a rebound uh, it's really exciting to see what's going to happen with him uh, in the same vein of Watson I love Josh Minot in Minnesota uh, you saw him barely play at Memphis the year before, just like Peyton Watson at UCLA. But in the G League, uh, the stat line was huge, and he's someone who showed those big block and steal rates uh, in, in college and then again uh, in the G League. And I think that's something that's going to translate really well. It might be a couple years out. You, you know, it might be someone who's taking on the role that you have from Kyle Anderson right now that eventually Minot is stepping into that. But he's someone in Dynasty that I'm looking to stash because the per-minute upside is so huge. Um, I loved Jaden Springer's oh, yes. to the year. That's the one I wanted. Jaden Springer, um, what you know, comes out of Tennessee, very raw prospect, but big assist rate, big steal rate, and he's really interesting. But he's small, and this is the archetype that the NBA is moving away from: these small guards who can't really shoot. Uh, but we've seen with some of them that they can develop enough game otherwise to be able to insert themselves into NBA rotations. And then they really can be disruptors and put up big fantasy stats. Springer is a guy who all of a sudden got some confidence in his shooting in the G League this year. I don't know if Doc Rivers is going to be comfortable playing with playing him next year or the year after that, or maybe Doc Rivers won't even be there. But Jaden Springer has something in fantasy, and he's a guy in deeper dynasty formats that you absolutely should find space for at the end of your bench. A couple of things on Springer. Um, he's six four. He's not that small, right? So there is some like he's. I don't know if he's a point guard or what he is, but his numbers in the G League were out of control. Like he didn't play a huge amount of games there, but they were crazy. They were crazily good. He dominated in the playoffs for that you know, for the Blue Coats, and even when they pushed him up in that if couple of games in April, I thought he looked good. I like all of those options there. I think there is some real... Like, Springer was a guy I was relatively high on in the draft. He's also really young. I think he was 18 when he was drafted. So he's, what, September 2002. So he's... Yeah, he's 19. Like, that's... Is he... Oh, no, he's 21. Sorry. No, he's not. He's 20. Get my ages right. He's 20. He turns 21 just before the season. So... And he's played... He's been in the league two years. So he's unbelievably young. Um, Minot's pretty young as well and Peyton Watson was pretty young these are all young guys who do have some very interesting skill sets I wasn't really thinking Minot but I, I do like that um, but Springer was the other one that was in my mind and Jalen Johnson who I think has a gigantic chance Matt to be a starter next season 
it's what they need because yeah. they need to be able to get the defensive presence that he has and the skill level. I think that, and, and they also have to get cheaper because they just signed uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich to an extension mm. and they're going to get pinched. And I just don't see that ownership group signing off for a huge year after year luxury tax bill. It's just not going to happen. No, they're tight asses. All right, so let's talk about um, settings. Let's talk about some key things. People always ask, what do you need to do? So what do you need to do? What are, We're not going to go through every single city. Maybe I'll do that at some point in the offseason. We'll go through and run dynasty leagues. But as a general rule, Matt, in a dynasty league, people often say, well, you know, who's who's a guy I can grab off my waiver wire? And I go, bro, that's really hard for me to answer because <laughs> some people will come to me and say, oh, yeah, I run a, um, we're in a dynasty league. We've got 12, 12 guys, um, you know, 13-man rosters. I go, that's, that's not a dynasty league. That's Like, to me, you've got to have minimum... 250 players rostered, I think, almost, or at least 200 players rostered for me to really start to look at that because otherwise you're just talking redraft. And at the problem with that is is that you have the teams who drop... If, you, if you're running a league where there's 150, 160 players rostered, for example, and you can disagree with any of this if you want, Matt, but the problem I see with that is that, like the teams who drop out of the standings, they start cutting good players to start stashing rookies. They go, well, I'm not going to win this year, so I'm going to drop... DeRozan, I'm going to drop um, CJ McCollum and I'm going to add Jaden Springer. We'll see what happens next season. I'll, I'll try Jalen Johnson out. And the good teams just go, thanks, I'll take these guys. And it becomes a battle. It becomes like the Premier League where it's like the top four teams are just playing a, a different game to the rest of the league where the others are trying to generate um, or your stash guys. You need to have extended benches. You need to be rostering. You, ne- you don't need to be in a situation where teams are dropping good players in order to try and invest in the future. So that's to me is absolutely the number one thing in terms of setting up a league that you've got to make sure you do is Make sure there's enough players rostered. You you, don't, you can't be in situations where the idea in a dynasty league, Matt, is not to drop players. Like that's not what it is. It's about invest. And the guys you're dropping might be the players who are like, "Hey, I might have to make a decision here and drop Darian Sebron." Like that's the sort of decision you got to make. Not like, <laughs> not am I going to drop Jonas Valanciunas because he's only playing 20 minutes a night, um, so I can stash, you know, insert player name here. To me, that is that is the number one thing. It's absolutely right. And if you're playing in kind of a standard 12-team dynasty league, you need to be in a place with the number of roster spots that you have where teams can both contend and stash young players at the same time and not have stashing a f- uh, some young players at the end of their bench limit their ability to contend in a season. You you yep. want people to be able to do both. And for me, that sweet spot gets uh, up around 240, 250 players rostered, which means that in a standard 12-team league, you're looking at 20-man rosters. I think that's a good way to be able to get to a place where you can stash young talent that's interesting, that has a chance in the future, while still competing. Because you should be competing. If you're rebuilding, it should be one year in a 12-team league. People talking about, oh, I'm going to be rebuilding for the next three years, maybe in a 30-team league. But in 12-team, you should be have a rebuilding year and you should be back to contending and you need to have rosters deep enough to allow that to not force the bad teams to spend year after year waiting for players to develop because they don't see a path to beating the top teams and Mm. that cycle is exactly what happens when you have rosters that are too shallow you got to do it. And people will say, well, 240, that's so many players. 537 players played in the game in the NBA this season. That's half. Like, that's less than half of, yeah, 240 is less than half of that. So there's still plenty of guys. And the idea in a dynasty league, Matt, people go, well, the waiver wire is dry. Like, yeah, that's the point. Like, you don't need the waiver wire. You don't want to be like, you know, grabbing these guys necessarily. The idea is to draft them, to trade for them, to identify that talent that way. You want to go deep. Like, that is the idea that's behind a dynasty league. So that is, to me, the number one thing. In terms of other settings that I think are really important, um, well, first of all, mate, you've got to have a rules document and you've got to have one of the key rules in that rules document is that the rules can be amended based on whatever you want. Like, generally, you want to do it, like, based on league vote or league majority or league plurality 
or and then when you institute it, the rules come in, you know, for the following season, not necessarily this coming season. All those things need to like you need to have a rule that tells you what happens when you adjust the rule and when those adjustments come in. To me, that's a key part of a document. But then there's always going to be something that comes up. You go, oh, we didn't really know what would happen here in this situation. So you've got to have those rules. Um, or the ability to adjust your rules and the ability to make those rules decisions and how they get instituted. So when you're creating a rules document, it sounds stupid, but the number one rule is how do I fix the rules, I think. So what, what are some other key rules you think you need to have or at least address? Whether you know, People go, what's the ideal settings? And I don't think there are ideal settings. There are things that you need to do, but what you make as the individual decision in there is up to you. But what's things you need to really pay attention to? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest headaches that can you have as a commissioner is money. You need to figure out a good way to be able to deal with people paying in their buy-in for a season. Have them do that before they're taking any major actions with their teams. Too often I've seen leagues where uh, commissioners don't collect money from people and then all of a sudden a new team manager comes in or the league starts. Someone all of a sudden blows up their team with a ton of trades. They have buyer's remorse and then they're out of the league and th the league is left in shambles because this team has lost all of its assets and the person left because they didn't put any money down. Um, so using something like Fantrax Treasurer is great because it can make people pay the buy-in before they even access the league, before they draft. And then it's all kept there, and you don't have to worry about it as a commissioner. You don't have to be the one holding it all of that time, and it becomes a great way to be able to have everybody be responsible uh, and, and, get, and move forward with the league without having the concern of someone just cutting bait uh, because they don't like the way that the league is going. Exactly. Uh, beyond exactly. that, yeah, go ahead. I was saying, exactly, um, you need to do that. I think the other big piece of it, you've got to consider if you want people to pay in advance, if they're uh, trading for future first round picks that can go into the tanking considerations that you uh, need to make. You also want to consider when you're adding new managers, how to do that. Uh, one of the things that I find, if there are multiple teams that have left a league, you have multiple teams that are open, instead of trying to find people who are willing to take on those orphan teams as they're constructed, what I like to do and what I found so much success with is putting together those teams into a pool that new managers draft from so they get to draft their own team it creates investment in their new roster that they actually drafted with their own choice rather than just taking on the mistakes that someone abandoned in a roster and i find that those teams those managers end up staying longer and you end up with a league that is healthier and more sustainable long term i just had an idea now you can you run way more dynasty leagues than me i don't run any anymore i used to run a few but not anymore but is there any validity to that situation, which I, I agree is probably the way to go. Like you, whatever, if there's two teams that leave, you put all the players and you draft them. Is there any validity to almost consider, even though you're not expanding, but considering it like almost a, a real life expansion draft where the existing teams get to protect certain amount of players and those new teams might actually be able to pick one player off an existing team just to you know, create a little bit of interest, a little bit of... Um, I don't know, intrigue, a little bit of evening of things. And that team that loses that player gets like an extra pick at the end of the first round rookie draft or some sort of compensation. Is there any validity to that or could that screw things up? It's definitely something that you need to have set out early on because you're going to have pushback from the strong teams in the league to say, this is a dynasty league. What do you mean you're going to tell me that I have to give up somebody on my roster? My roster's stacked. I don't want to put anybody in there. And if you have it from the outset, it's something that you can say to everybody, look, this was our procedure that we, when we had new managers coming in to be able to create parity in the league and to fix the mistakes, the prior sins of the managers that are leaving, we're going to do it this way. And I think that's a great way to do it. Compensatory picks are a great way to do it. Uh, there can be a lot of ways to be able to manage that parity and to avoid the situation where a league becomes so top heavy that it's not fun anymore. 
So I think you could do it like, okay, if if we have managers leave, you've got a 20-man roster, you can you choose the 13 guys that you want to protect. The new managers come in, they get to pick one player from whatever team they want. And if it's your player and your team, you get a pick at, you know, pick 13 in the rookie draft, which is after the first 12 have, have gone or whatever. So it's top of the second, end of the first round. I think it is something that, yeah, you're still getting to keep your 12 best players. You, but you've, maybe you've held on to someone, you're stashing them, and then look, that's just the way things go. Maybe you know, in real life, that player might be like agitating for playing time because they want a bigger contract. And that's that's sort of how things go in the real NBA. It's obviously a different mechanism to get there. But if the NBA was to expand, that's exactly what would happen, that you would have to protect players and then other teams would come and steal someone off you. That's how it works. And while it's not an exact expansion, it is a similar situation. So yeah, anyway, just came out with that. Last question, tanking. What do you do to combat it? Because that is a, multi- a question that multiple people asked me. Hey, what do we do with tanking? Because I'm sure this would this would have been a great question for people to answer before this season because obviously people were trying to get themselves Victor Wembanyama and the quality of rookies coming in perhaps next season isn't quite as high, but people are still going to tank. The thing that I had success with in my dynasty leagues, Matt, I'd like to hear your input on this. I think we might have spoken about this anyway on a show at some point, is you have, a, you have to have a draft lottery, number one, right? So for the teams that aren't in the playoffs, you have a draft lottery and how you weight that is up to you. I think that weighting it not as top heavy, like obviously the old NBA system, 25% for the you know, first three teams are never going to work. We're currently at 14%. I actually dropped that down a little bit, but the other thing that I do is that I expand it so that the lottery in the lottery, of the NBA is the top four picks. I would expand it out to seven so that the, the down, like if you tank your way to one, in the NBA now, like the Pistons, the lowest they could fall is five. So they are guaranteed, you know, one of the Thompsons, Miller, Scoot, or Wembenyama. Really, really good. In a dice, if you expand the lottery out to seven, well, they could fall to eight. So being at number one, and then you can end up at number eight with flattened odds, doesn't actually make that much of a deal, big difference to you. Like you might get, you might have a 10% chance and the fifth team might have a 7.5% chance, but the downside of you falling to eight, is it actually... Is that worth it? Like, I I think that sort of tempers some of the outrageous non-lineup setting tanking situations that that may go on or you know, dump trades and things like that. Yeah, removing flattening the lottery odds is a great way to be able to manage tanking. And then it comes down to how much your league cares about tanking and how much time you have as a commissioner that you want to try to police it during the season. Because some people say, I want everybody to play their best lineups. Well, that's very subjective. It is. And it ends up with drama and fighting over people saying, well, let me run my own team. You can't tell me what the best lineup is or who the best players to play are. I have this punt build. I don't like to do that. I think that what you can do is to try to keep people active. You can have games minimums that they need to play each matchup that can force people to set lineups, not just have their lineup be empty all season. Um, You can decide how strenuous you want that to be. And then you can have penalties to their lottery odds if they fail to meet those minimums for matchups throughout the year. And that's something that as a commissioner, you can assess at the end of the season to be able to say, well, looks like you didn't meet the minimum five different times, you know, by our bylaws, that means that your lottery odds go to the bottom and, you're, you're not going to get any of the benefit of that tanking that you were doing by not playing your lineups. Uh, that can be a way to encourage people to stay active during the year, keep looking at their league, keep looking at their lineups, uh, but also allow people to be able to try to get better picks, uh, try to increase their lottery odds by, you know, while still playing players, maybe tanking to some degree. The pushback that I know some people will have on the flattened lottery odds is people will say, well, why if you know, in a 12 man league and six teams make playoffs for example let's just use that as a base but you know most dynasties aren't 12 but whatever 
Um, if I'm seventh, what's what's the benefit of me pushing for the playoffs? Like, I don't get gate revenue. Like, what's the point of me pushing for the playoffs when I could lose my last couple of matchups, nine, get nine nilled, and get myself into the lottery odds and get a chance at, at a high pick? Like, how do you how do you reduce that potential? What's, what incentives do you have for playoff teams? What disincentives do you have from the teams finishing just outside the playoffs to combat that? Because that's... You know, while it might feel slimy, if that's the rules in place, like yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not pushing for the sixth spot in the playoffs. I'd rather get seventh and have a one in six chance of getting the number one pick, or you know, whatever my odds are. How do you combat that? Well, so you can either have uh, the bottom uh, non-playoff teams just get their pick slot. Uh, rather than having them be in the lottery. But if you want to have them all be in the lottery, um, then you either have to make the lottery odds for those spots so low that it doesn't really give any incentive and that it's better to make the playoffs and also maybe have some monetary incentive to make the playoffs. Increase that a little bit to be able to give people a reason to say, well, you know, I want to win a little bit of money rather than having a 5% chance to move up into the lottery picks, whatever it is. I think a good way to do it is you can depending on how you, your thing is set up, but you can also do it that all, all playoff teams get their buy-in back and then all other money just goes to the winner. No second place prize, no third place prize. So you're in the playoffs, you're battling for the big prize, but you get your money back if you don't get it, like versus what's I get for second or third. I think that enables a big enough prize for first and it encourages you to, you've played a free season here um, with a shot at a big win. Um, and if you don't get it, well, it's just your, your break even. You're not like, well, I made the playoffs. I bet I didn't get anything out of this at all. What was the point? I should have just tanked for it. So you get a free year out of it. And for some leagues, that might be $100 buying, $50 buying, whatever it is. But you've also got now a chance like I can push in to win this money back knowing that if I don't win it and I'm in the playoffs, that I have you know not cost myself anything. I think that's exactly right. And the big thing is we want to try to make this be fun rather than, you know, be a fight at the end of the year. And what I hate in Dynasty Leagues is where you end up, you know, everyone gets into it with each other about tanking and things like that. You need to understand the temperament of your league and how people feel about tanking. Some leagues just don't care. And they say, you know, if you want to burn your money on this season and try to lose, go ahead. You know, I'm going to keep winning money because I'm worried about winning, not about trying to, you know, gamble on rookies. Other leagues all they care about is competitive integrity and having every matchup matter the most. So know your league and try to find settings that at best meet the temperament of that and how much they care about tanking. I think what you said there is really, really key as well. And that was where we'll end on. You said it's like, it's fun. Like we're playing a game. Like you're not out here running dynasty leagues and this is your life's source of income. Where like, yeah, well, I actually pulled in 50 grand from my dynasty leagues this year. Like, no, you didn't because that just doesn't exist. So yeah, whether you're out here fighting and scrapping over, oh, but what, what if I get my $500? Yeah, $500 is a lot of money, right? But the idea is fun. Like that's, whatever you get on top of it, just whatever you get is a bonus. You're not out here scratching and grinding and this is your livelihood playing dynasty basketball leagues. Like it's not, it's bonus money on top of it and it's great to win that extra money, but the idea is fun. Like it's it's not, you're not like, hey, sorry kids, no dinner tonight because I didn't win my dynasty league. Like that's not what this is about, Matt. And Unless I'm completely wrong and you're running $50,000 dynasty leagues, I don't think that's happening. No, I think it's all about enhancing your enjoyment of the league. And yeah. dynasty leagues do that. Um, and it's it's it makes it better to watch the NBA in the offseason, the playoffs, the regular season, the preseason, summer league, if you're playing in a dynasty league. Um, so if you're watching this, you're listening to this, I, I would say if you're not in a dynasty league, now's the time. 
Uh, if you want to join one, check out my profile on Twitter. You can uh, join the Fantasy Basketball International Discord community. Uh, we're going to have league opportunities uh, constantly in the coming weeks and months. Um, and we're going to make sure that we can try to get as many people into a dynasty league as who want to be in one. So go follow Matt. Dynasty NBA Dynasty ADP and uh, a little birdie by the name of Adam King told me you're you're getting a Dynasty podcast going. We're getting it started. Um, if you didn't get tired of listening to me today, uh, you, there's more of it coming. So if you subscribe to the Fantasy Basketball International YouTube channel, uh, search for Fantasy Basketball International where you listen to podcasts. You can hear Adam already. He's been doing a lot of podcasting over the last year, uh, and I'm going to throw myself into the fray as well. Yeah, Adam just went balls deep with me yesterday for his show, just talking about stuff that's sort of a bit outside fantasies, and he's got a bunch of those in the can that he's going to release. And Matt, if you need someone to come on your Dynasty show, I'm happy to come on and, and be a guest as I just invite myself on. So if you ever need that, you know where to, to reach out. But go follow Matt on Twitter. Follow those other guys we mentioned at the start. I'm going to have some of those guys on as we talk Dynasty. And get involved in a Dynasty League. I'm telling you now, you're going to have a lot of fun doing it. If you love fantasy basketball and you listen to this on April the 13th or whenever it is, then you do love fantasy basketball. So you are going to have fun. Matt, thank you again for, for joining me and uh, chatting Dynasty. Thanks, Josh. It's a pleasure as always. Guys, follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the Odyssey app and on YouTube. You thumb it up, you leave your comments down below. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.